Hi, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, supported by UBS. Earlier this year, I posted on my personal Instagram account a picture of the novel My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Tessa Moshfei. Set in the year 2000, the novel is an art world called classic, not only because it is so well written, but also because it stars a wealthy, jaded young woman working in an art gallery. This nameless narrator takes a cocktail of sleeping pills and voluntarily confines herself to her apartment to sleep through an entire year of her life, her physical needs attended to by a scandal-mongering artist. To be honest, this was not the easiest interview, because Otessa's bluntly truthful answers often wrong-footed me. So my interview choreography rapidly collapsed, and we veered into the broader topics of literary celebrity, social media, and how different a thing it is to create in the realms of music, literature, and cinema. In the end, I found it a fascinating ride, and I hope you will too. So let's start at the beginning. I was interested to read in the various research that I was doing that actually you were sort of on the road to being a musician. And then because you missed an application deadline to interlock in summer music camp, you went to a creative writing course instead. Mm -hmm. Well, my background in music started when I was in utero. My parents were both musicians and teachers. My mom's a violist and my dad's a violinist. I played a lot of instruments, but piano was the thing that I was definitely most suited for. Mostly I was really stressed out as a pianist. I was always fighting what felt like an inability to get past a certain hump in my technique. And, you know, there was always the sad truth that I wasn't a composer. I was a performer, and being a performer is something that is very ethereal. So when I had that experience where I couldn't get into the piano program at Interlochen and went to a creative writing program instead, I guess the universe just wanted me to realize that this is something that I should be focusing on more. Is it wrong to think about writing in the English language as something which gave you a space that was separate from that of your parents who were both musicians, but also people who came to America from somewhere else, your mother from Croatia and your father from Iran? I mean, was the English language very much your domain? That's what it felt like. I mean, it was also the domain of everyone else around me. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Um, But I did feel like I had a private language. For me, as like an adolescent, I was like, oh, this is a special thing. Nobody can hear it. When you're practicing piano, the whole house can hear it. (laughs) But when you're writing and scribbling out words and having thoughts, it's a very interior process. And... That gave me a sense of privacy and I sort of started building a world, an imaginative world around that. Yeah, that's the interesting thing is you start as a writer, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you start from zero and then you build up a kind of edifice of words and ideas. Writing took you to Barnard and to New York City and you took a sculpture class with Rachel Harrison in the early 2000s. What did she teach you? Well... She gave me the space to engage with my imagination in a way that was very innocent. I had never done sculpture before. I had always been more interested in 2D art, drawing, painting, photography. And I had had this 
feeling sculpture would help me as a writer, that maybe it would help me imagine things in 3D. That was as simple as I was thinking upon my approach to this class. But what I ended up being engaged in, in the conversations with Rachel and the other students was seeing objects and extrapolating meaning from them as though they are items in a world that we're looking in on. That kind of thing was totally transportive in a way, took away the boundary that I always feel in other mediums, like in painting. It's very clear where the painting ends and where I begin. But a sculpture is something that you can walk around and share space with. That was very significant. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. A majority of collectors surveyed were very concerned about racial disparities and minority underrepresentation in the art market. Over half plan to actively diversify their collections in the future. Could this be a more hopeful signal towards a fairer and more diverse market in the future? For more insights, visit ubs.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. My sculptures sucked. I like, had no idea what I wanted to do or what to do. And I wasn't even quite sure like how to express anything visually. Rachel also said something in one of our early classes that made an enormous impression on me, and it was about politics. This was the fall that George W. Bush was running against Gore, and everyone was crazy about this new Green candidate whose name I can't remember. Ralph Nader? (laughs) Ralph Nader. Everyone was crazy about Ralph Nader. Like, a lot of young people were supporting him. And I hadn't really matured yet into thinking of myself as a member of society. So I was all kind of witnessing it from the outside. And I still kind of feel that way. But she said, don't let your friends vote for Nader, because it's going to take votes away from Gore. And if we elect Bush, we are going to be at war in the Middle East soon. I'll never forget that, especially because she was right. So my experience of art was so colored by this sense of impending doom in this period, which was a year or two before 9-11. So somehow in my imagination, I had carried this impending dread down to Chelsea every week because part of our homework was to go to a gallery, go see a show every week, come back, tell us what you saw and what you thought about it. There was just this weird thing where, you know, going and looking at uh, Damien Hurst's cow cut in half, thinking like, oh, that costs $17 billion. 
and we're going to be at war in the Middle East soon. It was a very strange feeling. Also, the galleries were packed at this time. Art seemed like really popular in a way that it, that I don't think it's popular right now. This is also pre-social media domination. So if you wanted to see something, like you really had to go see it. I mean, I liked the tension of all of that, the context and the dramatic situation. And that really was very inspiring when I sat down to write my year of rest and relaxation. When I found myself in the gallery in which the protagonist, who has no name, works, the art pieces that I saw myself conjuring up, these fictional art pieces, these were not art pieces that were to exist in a post-9-11 world. I had no idea what year it was until I started imagining the art. And it was like, this is not art from 2015 or 2016, the year that I was composing the novel. It was art from back then when I was taking that class with Rachel Harrison before 9-11. And so all of those things really kind of were weaving themselves into a fabric and into a sense of the city and this one character's journey. And it all kind of came together in a way that I didn't know what I was getting into. I read it about a year ago and I felt while reading it, like I was on any number of the drugs that the main character ingests to trigger this year of more or less sleeping. (laughs) It was a kind of hallucinatory experience. It was also a very funny experience because your send-ups of the art world is obviously exaggerated, but I think it's not that far away, at least from the way some people perceive certain parts of the art world, including many people in the art world like myself. Mm. I'm curious how people in the art world reacted to this book when it came out? Well, yeah. How did they react? I mean, I'm not in the art world, so I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll tell you, like when I put online that I was reading this book, I was inundated with DMs from people who were huge fans of it. Of course, I think, you know, for the people in the art world, this character who is this kind of cold front desk gallery woman in avant-garde clothes and the owner who sort of uses ideas to very speciously build this Potemkin village of ideas around the things that she thinks are going to sell next rang very true. You've talked about how the art from that period to you felt like a kind of a representational cultural excess. It's subversive, but not in any way that's Mm -hmm. threatening. And I'm curious to the extent that you follow what's going on in the art world now. Well, I haven't been looking at art. I got to be honest with you. The reason I haven't been looking at art is that I have been hiding from it. I am scared that art, like so many things right now, is becoming so perverted by social media-driven politics and that everything is becoming commentary or needing to be in conversation with a consciousness that I think is inherently idiotic because it is from the internet. I'm scared of it and I don't want to go and feel bad and cynical. So I'm just hiding. That being said, I 
I'm also pals with Jordan Wolfson, and he asked to take my picture with a friend. Italian Vogue was doing a their September issue had covers that were pieces by different artists, and Jordan wanted to do one and take a photo of Emma Klein, an, another American author, and me, and. I said yes, because that sounded like a really weird and interesting experience, knowing Jordan Wolfson. <laughs> but while I was at his studio, he showed me some things that he was working on. That didn't make me cynical at all. His work is dealing so much with the subconscious and his own subconscious and feels deeply personal. I left feeling better about what the future might be, but... I have to plead ignorance on a lot of stuff about art. That's okay. It's not a quiz. You said once that my year of rest and relaxation was something that you wrote to challenge your cynicism. It's the most cynical view possible of the art world and of certain parts of it, specifically the market and the Chelsea scene. Did that work? (laughs) Did it challenge your cynicism? Did it change your relationship to art in some way, even if you're avoiding it now? Well, I think it changed my relationship to art because I didn't know how a gallery was run. So I had to go find out in order to be able to write the book. And I really didn't know that much about art as an industry or how things work. So I had to educate myself a little bit. And it definitely made me more cynical about the art world. But... That being said, everything is a metaphor in many ways. And writing about the art world for me was like writing about the world. The world in which you are young, you have a dream about what you want to be. And it feels like this incredibly tall mountain to climb. And you're kind of in awe of the people who have gone before you. But the reality (laughs) might be that like once you're on top of this hill and you're like, okay, I did everything I had to do. I made it and I'm here now. And you look around and everyone's really boring and just obsessed with themselves. And there is no glory to be found arriving anywhere because you're still you and you still have to deal with all the shit that you're bringing the art world seemed like a interesting place to house part of that story to be like her cynicism and her narration of this very over the top situation at the gallery at the opening where Ping Shi's dogs are seen for the first time. He's described as a pubescent looking 23 year old who was kicked out of Cal Arts for firing a gun in his studio. So of course you think Chris Burden, but you also think Anselm Kiefer, because he makes art by ejaculating, as well as Damien Hirst a little bit, Jeff Koons maybe, some of Terrence Coe. It's an interesting character. I don't know if you had any specific artists in mind, or if you sort of mixed them all up and then put it on steroids. But I mean, talk to me about Ping Xi as a character. Ping Xi as a character, like I saw him as a little bit of a naive and a little bit of a sociopath. And I didn't think of him as an intellectual at all. And that's why I liked him as a character. (laughs) He seemed pretentious in a way 
and he seemed super ambitious in a way. But I always held on to this part of Ping Shi where I was like, well, nobody could ever really know or understand him because his work is simply unimaginably weird. You know, it's funny because I've been working on a screenplay adaptation of this book. So I've been thinking about Ping Shi as a real person in a new way in this other medium. And in the screenplay, there was some exchange between the protagonist and Ping Shi at one point where she says something like, did you really kill all those dogs? And he said, those were fur coats. Like my parents own a dry cleaning business and sometimes people die and never pick up their fur coats. Do you want to explain to the listeners about the dogs? Oh yeah, sure. So there's sort of a pivotal scene in my year of rest and relaxation, which is the opening of Ping Shi's art show at Ducat, the gallery where the protagonist works. It's a solo show and it mostly consists of taxidermied dogs who have been positioned in certain ways to denote certain characters. There's a very fluffy poodle with like a bouffant hairdo and a red ribbon. I think there's a dachshund. It's very dachshundy. Anyway, they look like taxidermy dogs. Before the gallery opens the show, some interns are talking about like how he did it and they're speculating about how he killed them. So it seems like Everyone believes these are real dogs and all of the guests respond to them as though they're real dogs and the conversations about them have to do with death and mortality and realism. So I just thought it would have been so funny if the whole time they were just like dead rich people's coats that he had, he had repurposed to try to like sell the same rich people death. It's a great recycling move. Is it weird to come back to characters who you sort of committed to the page and sent off to the publisher five years later? Yes, it's very weird. I've been doing that a lot, actually. It's like, okay, I made up a person. Then I got to know that person by writing about them so well that I can imagine them in any situation now. That person is like a ghost figure that only I know, really. And the way that they're interpreted by others in the book is not up to me. But then you take that same person and you put them in a movie script. And then someone, like an actor, acts out what that person is doing. It's like they're inhabiting the ghost of the person that you invented. It's incredibly bizarre. It's incredibly bizarre that like human beings have created the possibility for all that. I would imagine if it was me and someone was making a movie of my book, even if I was writing the screenplay, I would have all sorts of control issues around it. Do you or, or did you let go of them? Or how is that? I have a movie that's going into production in December and I don't feel controlling about it at all. I could be wrong about this. But is it a movie based on one of your books? Yeah. I could be wrong about this, but I just feel like there is an essential nature of the project that can't be fucked up. 
and that the character is going to speak through it, that the story will tell itself no matter what. Um, yeah. I don't know. When I was reading your past interviews or past conversations about writing, on the one hand, you talk about writing as a spiritual act, and on the other hand, you say that you sort of deliberately make your mind dumb when you write. And I'm curious what you meant by those two things and how they relate to each other. What I mean is if I'm not writing from an active place, but more of a automatic place, where is that coming from? Is it coming from my subconscious? Well, why am I writing this story about someone I don't know and from my subconscious? I'm not really a Freud person. Like I'm more of a, I guess, like a spiritualist in this scenario. Like I feel like these stories are coming from outside of me, and it's my job to write them down and then get involved in their construction because maybe the voice that's dictating them isn't the best writer. So that's kind of the, the spiritual experience and the dumb thing combined. The dumb voice, the dumbness is really just trying to be quiet, trying to quiet my own thoughts to let the thoughts of the book reveal themselves. That's all. So it's kind of a mindfulness that allows you to channel the characters out of your subconscious and onto the page? Yeah, ch channel the narration. Yeah. Do you have a certain kind of practice or process to how you write? You know, every book has been a little bit different. When I was writing my year of restroom relaxation, big surprise, I was mostly in bed because I have pretty serious chronic back problems. And this was a period where I was really just couldn't move. So I would mostly generate prose in the morning before I felt like I was too attached to my life to be that open. And then usually do revisions and things afterwards when I was more awake to myself. I don't know. Big part of the process was being super frustrated with that book. I took a lot of left turns and came back around to where I had started, realizing that I had gone nowhere. And that's unusual for me. I usually feel like I know exactly what I'm doing in a novel. But in this case, I really didn't. And do you think that part of it might have to do with the fact that the character herself is so lost? Yeah, I think that was it. <laughs> and I was kind of lost while I was writing it too. It was like literally didn't have a home. I was leaving one place, going to another for like, I don't know, like a year and a half. Maybe it wasn't that long. It felt like a long time. And then I moved back to LA and finished the book there. But yeah, like I started this book in New York and then I wrote it in Paris. And then I had been living in Oakland, California, put the book away left Oakland, thought I was going to move back home to Massachusetts, started working on the book again, realized that I couldn't do that, so found myself residencies in upstate New York and then in New Hampshire, and then realized that I need to get out of New England, so I went to Montreal. I don't know. I was just all over the place. You once said that 
that my year of rest and relaxation led to a kind of overexposure that it took you a long time to recover from. I'm curious mm-hmm. what that process was like, because obviously it was a book that got a lot of attention. What happened in your life as a result of that book? And then why did you have to get over it? What happened was I saw my work as a product to an extent that I hadn't ever seen it before. And I saw that a persona created in the media was emerging as this weird twin who wasn't really me. And I kind of had to accept that in order to protect my real me from the incredible feeling of vulnerability when you are out with something that came out of you and people are walking around with it and criticizing it or comparing it to other stuff, taking ownership of it and all that kind of stuff. I was very grateful at the same time for all of that exposure, but it's really hard to be radical when you feel like everyone is watching you. So when all of my touring was over, I really just wanted to be very quiet and get back to my obsessions and try to like, you know, break myself into the next stage. Who was the persona that you saw emerging, this kind of fake or false twin of yours? Who was the Otessa Moshe that you were seeing in the press or in people's minds? And how different was she from you yourself? I think the difference was that she was someone who gave a shit. And she was someone who believed that her interviews were actually important. Because when the interviews were over, I didn't care anymore. (laughs) My life was not being the person in those interviews. It was like leaving the interviews and lighting a cigarette, calling my fiance about something completely different. You came of age in a time when, as you said before, social media was not a thing that was present at all. And now you're an active producer of culture in a time when it's omnipresent. How do you see that influence on society? How do you think about its influence on the culture, on the people around you? I mostly see that people are really rude on their phones in human interactions. Or maybe I don't feel like theorizing about the broader thing because it's sort of engaging with the problem. So I'm going to keep my response to the way that affects my daily life. I find it really rude that people <laughs> people walk around on their phones. I find it really sad and very sick. And when I do it, when I'm talking to someone, when I'm in the grocery store, I feel like an asshole. Like I feel like I'm wasting my life. I think it's very sad and silly that we're disconnecting so much from our material reality because this is where all the good shit is. It's not on the phone. So last question. My year of rest and relaxation is set in New York. And it's very specific to New York in the sense that, you know, she's going out to the bodegas. She works in Chelsea. You know, how do you see New York and L.A., who are the two great cities from a cultural perspective of the United States, and yet very different, having lived and worked in both? And how do you see the New York of 2000 versus the New York of today? I went to New York in April. and restaurants maybe had been open for a while. Actually, I was there the day they said you don't have to wear your mask outside. And I loved being in New York. 
it felt really fucked up around my hotel. They said it was in Chelsea, but it was definitely in Midtown. The city felt dangerous in a way that it hadn't for a long time and also very beautiful. Previous to the pandemic, my trips to New York were always kind of like bracing for disappointment because something that I remembered wasn't going to be there anymore. Modernity had changed the way that a certain street corner felt and all that kind of stuff. I still love New York. I don't know if I love L.A. with the same part of my heart that I love New York, but I don't know. I can't believe I live here. It's such a foreign landscape to me. Like, I'm a New England person. I am a humidity person. And I'm a winter person. And this is really strange. I don't know. Creativity exists in both cities in really powerful ways. I tend to respect New York's creativity more. People are a lot more relaxed in L.A., don't you think? I think that's true. Did you move to L.A. with the intention of working on movies or that just happened because you were there? I wasn't admitting to myself that I wanted to work on movies, but I moved here for no reason. I knew no one. I had nothing. (laughs) And I like didn't know what I was going to do here. Couldn't find a job for like a year. Was like very, very broke. But I think I just felt called to come here. I wanted to get away. The last time I had gone away from the Northeast, I had moved to China. So this kind of was like the furthest realistic place that I could go without leaving the country. Sorry, that you moved. When was it you moved to LA? This was, I think, 2011. Yeah, that's it. And this is a long time ago. I hadn't published a book, I hadn't done anything. I had just finished graduate school I didn't know how I was going to make a living subconsciously I hoped maybe I could do something with movies and when did you start working on films about four years ago I was approached to adapt my first book McGlue which is a novella and uh, got into it and have been writing screenplays since then good And books? And books, yes. How do you balance those two things? Very badly. Very, very badly. Writing screenplays, even when it's not collaborative, it's collaborative. And writing novels, I just am deep in my own cave world. So, I mean, it's been interesting. Not knowing how to write a screenplay, teaching myself how to do it, and then actually doing it has changed the way that I think about novels, for sure. And I think has made me a more thoughtful writer in novels that have scenes and dialogue. My vision has become a little bit more 360. And I like how thinking about movies structurally has me thinking about novels structurally in bigger ways. But balancing it like in terms of Finding time to hold the space for a novel is really, really hard. The pandemic was good for that, though. Like, I wrote a novel over the lockdown year, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. Good. I think we'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.